I'm just thinking of Paul's admonition to the Galatians. It's a pretty startling rebuke that he gives to the Galatian church. You know, he uses language that is perhaps a bit obscure in the English translation. It says, you know, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. And we have to understand a little bit of the cultural context. We're going to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to open it up to the, for these guys to start questioning us here momentarily. But I just want to give a framework, if I may. If we look at the historical context of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we have a scenario where historians tell us that Rome traditionally and typically accepted the reality and persistence of new and foreign religions. When they would conquer a people who had a new religion, they would actually make a habit of going into the temple of that new conquered people, into that new religious temple, and making a sacrifice to the gods of that people. And they would... They would, they would offer some kind of, of, of sacrifice to this new religion in order to show peace and cooperation. In other words, Rome was very accomplished at getting along with other religions. They were multicultural. They were pluralistic. Their religion was a pluralistic religion by nature. The only exception in Roman history where religion became a sticking point that upset the harmony of the imperial system was Judaism and Christianity. And Judaism, it was kind of a hybridized upset because it centered around the Jerusalem and the conquest of Judea and different customs that were sometimes interfered with in the operation of the temple. Post-temple period, it's really just Christianity because even, um, even Jews had come under some kind of agreement with Rome where their religion was accepted and licensed, if that makes sense. David Gibbs tells us that the Roman state had a system called religio licita. And by that, he means that Every religion was accepted so long as it was licensed. Religio, religion, licensed, licita. And if you, if you were part of the, if you were a licensed religion and if you had your, if you had found your place in the Roman system, you were fine. They wouldn't, they wouldn't pick on you. Now, occasionally, uh, like once a year, a couple times a year, if I, if I remember correctly, you would be asked to make an oath to Caesar. And that oath would basically amount to you acknowledging that you submitted to no other sovereign and potentate than Caesar Augustus. And when you made that oath, they would ask you to, in the words of one historian, give a little pinch of incense, where you burned a little pinch of incense, to quote him, to Caesar. And the Christians felt like this was impossible because they were, in, in effect, saying they had no real Lord in their lives other than Caesar Augustus. And then they were asked to burn what amounted to a, a ceremonial sacrifice, what historians called a pinch of incense, to Caesar. And 
if they didn't do that, depending on which imperial system that you're talking about, but under the strictest uh, context, if they didn't do that, it was a death penalty. And basically Rome said, look, religion is ethereal. Religion is intangible. It's metaphysical. Whereas state is tangible, practical, it's physical. So you, you can have your religion if it's licensed, but you also need to acknowledge no practical daily submission except to the sovereignty of Caesar. And the Christians were unwilling to do it. And it's an insight into how they viewed submission to God. They didn't view it like we view it today, where it was so private, in the words of one famous quote, they wouldn't impose it even on themselves. Um, they didn't view it that way. They really imagined a society in terms of a kingdom. So they felt that their daily life entailed a daily obedience to Christ through the Spirit. And so for them to say that they would submit to no other sovereign but Caesar, Caesar above all sovereigns, let's put it that way, was a lie, and then to offer him a pinch of incense was idolatry. And so they were unwilling to do it. By the time Paul's writing the Galatians, the Christians are actually enjoying much less understanding in the Roman system than the Jews were. And so you've got the Jews kind of reaching this place of neutrality where they're accepted if they stay in the lines, kind of the Josephus style of Judaism. And you're accepted if you stay in the lines. Paul would have subscribed to this. He was taught under Gamaliel or Gamaliel, however you say that. And uh, Gamaliel was very much uh, uh, of the mind that you should cooperate with the Romans. And so the Jews were actually a licensed religion. They were religio licita, whereas the Christians were not. They never enjoyed that status, really ever. And, and so, when, so there was this real pull on Christians to kind of have this experience with Christ, but then fall back into a framework where you weren't as vulnerable, where you weren't as likely to be drugged before a, a pot, uh, some kind of Roman prefect or magistrate, and where you would be more likely to keep your life. And so when, when we read Paul and he's talking to them about wanting to be enslaved again and going back under the law, we think of it simply in terms of, you guys, I don't want you to live such an oppressed existence. That's actually not what he's saying. He's saying, you guys, you're trying to go back to your safety zones. You're trying to go back to a place where you're accepted by society, where there's a niche carved out for you in the imperial system, where your life is not at threat. Do you understand? And so a lot of his anger was, you're sellouts. You're going back to what works. It'd be very similar today to like this three self church in China. Now, uh, I think that's what it's called. The state recognized church of China's the three self church, I think is what it's called, um, depending on how you translate that. Um, but it's the licensed church of China. And there is no other licensed church in China. And so if you're part of some other church, you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable to having your building burned down. You're vulnerable to being arrested. You are vulnerable because the Chinese church is against you. You do not have a licensed religion. You do not have religiolicita. And why? Why not? Because China does still view a certain brand of relational Christianity as com competition with its imperial goals. They don't call it imperial, but with its status goals, if that makes sense. So it's very comparable. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who's part of the three-self church is not Christian. There may be sincere, devout 
believing, well-saved people in that setting. But for someone to come out of it and to, you know, start a vibrant relationship with Christ through the Spirit and then get scared and go back to that and quit the house church, Paul would write them and say, you're wanting to be enslaved again. Because maybe the three-self church just requires a certain list of do's and don'ts. It's not near as risky. It's much safer, you know. And, and so there would be this draw to return to it simply because it's accepted, it's safe. And, you know, there, I'm just emphasizing one dimension. I'm not saying that was the only reason people wanted to return to legalism. I'm saying it's a major factor that helps us, pers- that helps us understand what the draw was back to what Paul called enslavement. And so in Galatians, Paul rebukes them and he tells them that they've been bewitched and an evil spell has been cast on them. But in the third chapter of Galatians, he pivots, he, he makes his whole argument against legalism pivot on one point, and that is the power and experience of the Holy Spirit. And so in, uh, in verse 19 of chapter 2, just leading into ver- chapter 3, he says here, If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul said there was a day when you saw it. You got it. You understood what the, what the reality and, and remedy of sin was on the cross. And then he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. So he's angry at them that they've returned to legalism. He's angry at them that they have turned from the cross. But he says the only thing he wants to find out for them is this. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So we would like Paul's juxtaposition to be law and liberty. But that's not his juxtaposition. His juxtaposition is law and slavery and bondage and on the other hand, power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, if the law works, I want to know, how did you get the Holy Spirit? So he's going to basically take them back to the experience of receiving the Spirit and say, if you got that by the law, then stick with the law. But if you got that in a totally different way, in a much more relational, trusting, powerful, dynamic way, then don't go back. Now, if we don't have the Spirit in our lives as the Galatians have had, Paul, Paul's argument would be much less powerful for us. But he goes on, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? So now we know that they suffered. Now we know that what they're recoiling from is sacrifice and suffering. 
But they've already gone through so much. He said, you already went through so much. Was it useless? If indeed it was in vain. So then, look at here. Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so right here he says, the God who works miracles among you and provides, and the, the, the Greek tense there is not once provided. It's not a past tense. It's ongoing, who is this provision of the Holy Spirit to you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In short, he wants these people to stay engaged. He wants these people to have a vibrant relationship of trust with God. He doesn't want them falling back to some easy do's and don'ts or to some ceremonial customs and saying, I've gotten my God duty done with. I've gotten my salvation covered because, see, I'm a Jew like I always was a Jew and we're part of a licensed religion now and I just realize it's not near as scary and I used to suffer when I was part of the Christian group but now I'm back in this group and I'm safe. He's inviting them and he's saying, look, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? I just want to draw attention to that. The God who works miracles among you and provides you with the Holy Spirit. So Paul believed that their return to the law was absurd because it didn't provide them with miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his big argument. That's his big appeal. The God who works miracles among you and provides you with the Holy Spirit, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And he wants them to basically answer and say, Paul, God gives us the Spirit when we hear his word and we respond in faith. We're so sorry. We repent. He wants them to realize that in order to continue to have this power in their life, they've got to stay in relationship. They've got to trust God. They've got to have an experiential relationship with God instead of a theoretical relationship with God. So that kind of, that's my preamble to our discussion today. I'm just basically saying the whole framework even of his discussion of grace versus law is pivoted on the idea that the Christians of his day had an experience with the presence and power of God. And therefore, why go back to what didn't give you that? It's a juxtaposition not between obedience and libertinism, but a juxtaposition between the power of God and being powerless. I want to just add a little bit to this for a minute. And I was thinking about how Paul said, I'm in the pains of childbirth yet again until I see Christ formed in you. Amen. I think that's just in chapter 4 here. He says, chapter 4, 19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth Amen. until Christ is formed in you. I think about what's going on here in the church and what you're talking about and we talked about this a little bit in our Wednesday group and how each day is a fight of faith. Amen. That's why Paul can say at the end of his life that he has run the good race. He, is, he has fought the good fight Amen. of faith. He has not shrunk back even for a moment. And I think about how intense this battle can really look in our life, that each day we are underneath an onslaught in which unbelief is attacking us. Amen. Um, I don't know a single person that has not had a powerful encounter with God that the next day or the next week the devil goes to work with all that he has to discount and discredit 
the event that just took place. Now that's not a surprise. We see that parallel or that pattern when we read the Old Testament accounts of God doing mighty works. Amen. How quickly were they explaining the way of the Red Sea? Amen. I mean, how quickly were they explaining the way the powerful work of the deliverance of the children of Israel from the house of bondage and slavery in Egypt? I mean, we think about these miracles, frogs raining from the sky, the Nile turned into blood. I mean, you know, we think about a sea parting through a great wind that dries up the ground, so they walked over in firm footing. And yet when they came to the waters of the Jordan and they looked over to see walled cities, they had already started to explain away the miracles of God and Amen. the powerful working of God. It shows that the race or the fight in this life, the conflict, is this fight of unbelief and faith. Amen. And that is the epic <clears throat> conflict that is going on inside of every heart. Amen. You know, I was just thinking when you were talking about Hebrews 5 and 6, and he says you should have progressed at this point. Right. You should be those who are, are, are discerning righteousness yeah. and discerning oh, yeah. good from evil, you know. Yeah. And he says, but instead, we're going to have to go back to the basic teachings again yeah. and lay a basic foundation. But then he makes this pretty strong warning, and he says, and we will do this if God allows. Hmm. Almost saying that, the place you got to before was not of your own doing. Amen. It was because a window of grace was open to you, and you responded in faith, and God did a work in your guys' midst. Amen. You kind of feel that because if you look at the back half of Hebrews 6, listen to what he says. For land that has drunk in the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Amen. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what is his argument? He's saying, you all receive something from God. The question is, have you stewarded the grace and faith that was deposited into your life unto maturity? Amen. Because if you haven't, what happens to ground, he says, that gets the attention of fertilizer and rain and cultivation of its soil? If it doesn't produce a crop, does it continue to get cultivated? Amen. He says, no, it gets abandoned right. and to be something that's a briar patch or a wilderness. Amen. And then this is what he says. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the same exhortation to Galatians. Amen. It's the same thing. I would the pains of childbirth. He's writing to saved people. That's right. That's right. And he's basically telling them they still have something to receive. Amen. He's saying, I want you to go deeper and deeper into his word of truth. It's pretty hard not to think what he's talking about is to be the constant um, experience or encounter with God through the Spirit. Amen. Because he goes on, he says, and thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, obtained the promise. We know every time he speaks about Abraham obtaining the promise, he's talking about Isaac. And we know that in Galatians, Paul says it as clearly as he can, the two children born to Abraham were for allegorical purposes to talk about one who was born in slavery and one who was born from the Jerusalem above Amen. who was free, the one who was born of promise, the one who was born of the Spirit. Amen. You know, And so all I'm saying is to tag on to what Brother Ossie opened with is, is that he was so perplexed by the situation that he found the Galatians in that he was worried on whether or not 
they were going to be able to recover back to a place of faith because they had discounted and explained away the life and power that was found in God's spirit to the point in which he goes, I'm in the pains of childbirth until I see that same event that happened when I first visited you now occur in your heart yet again. He's concerned that unbelief is going to swallow them up. Amen. You know, And it's the same thing that he's writing here in Hebrews, and it's the same battle that we all face in our hearts as we pursue God. You know, it is. It's that battle of unbelief. It's that cynical man. It's that man that wants to explain things, as it says, through the carnal mind, which is hostile towards God. Amen. And in order to escape from that, you're going to have to get to a point where you renounce that a natural experience that describes an encounter with the living God is true. You're going to have to get to a point where you look at just what seems to be the carnal mind just now going through better principled reasoning as an encounter with the living God, you're going to have to get to a point where you say, no, I really believe tongues of fire fell from heaven and men were immersed or baptized into the presence of God. And I believe that that promise is true for us. And I think I have settled for a reality that is not descriptive of what men encountered when they encountered the living God in this book. One of the things that people struggle with when they're when we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is they we tend to look at it, we're all kind of inclined to look at it as simply something for my private enjoyment or benefit. And that is not how it was ever introduced. That's not how Christ originally framed it in his discussion with Nicodemus. What I want to say broadly is the kingdom of God on the earth today is not ruled by a natural government. It is ruled through the Spirit. And so unless you have an experience that turns into an, a relationship that basically opens a whole new dimension of encounter of relationship for you, then God's kingdom can't come through your life on the level that he designs. And, and so to start with this, we, we have to go back to Nicodemus, who was part of the Pharisees, part of the, um, the Sanhedrin. He's actually one of the silent members, one of two silent members, who, is, who belongs to the body of religious leaders who condemned the Lord to death later on. But at a point in, in, in Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus is sufficiently intrigued that he arranges a, a midnight meeting with the Lord. It's pretty famous. Just listen to how that relationship, how that exchange starts to unfold. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a teacher among Israel. And he meets with the Lord at night. And he comes with a lot of good things to say. And he says to the Lord, We, we know that you are sent from God. For no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. And so this, this, this kind of broad we would seem to indicate we the Pharisees, we the Sanhedrin, we the rulers and leaders of Israel know that you are sent from God for no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. And it seems that Jesus changes the topic on Nicodemus. 
And instead of engaging whether or not he's sent from God and whether or not their perception is right, it seems that Christ changes the topic and starts talking about how one enters the kingdom. But the Lord is simply discerning what Nicodemus's intentions are. Does that make sense? So Nicodemus comes and he says, we know that you're sent from God. Jesus is going, this guy thinks that I'm their man. He is picturing that I might be the Messiah and I'm going to bring about the political reforms and liberation that they have in mind. So he just basically skips right over the whole conversation about whether I'm from God and he talks about the kind of kingdom that he's coming to bring. Okay? So he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So Nicodemus thinks he's coming to kind of give Jesus a wink, wink, nod, nod. Hey, I think you might be our man. And Jesus says, hey, even if I was, you don't know what kind of kingdom it's supposed to be. And then he makes this startling statement. He says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this shows that what Nicodemus had on his heart was the kingdom, the realization of the kingdom. The talk about the baptism of the Spirit is relevant if pursuit of the kingdom is first and foremost in our hearts. It's, it's how we relate to the kingdom. So Jesus says, you must be born again of water and spirit. Here in John 3, uh, we're in verse 5 through 7 now. He says, for that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So his clear implication is you got to get a new kind of being born because this, the kingdom is spiritual and you're currently only fleshly. And so Nicodemus is perplexed by this and Jesus kind of pokes him again. And he says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? And so right here, Jesus is suggesting that Nicodemus should know the scriptures enough to expect a spiritual reformation of Israel and not a political dynasty, you know, return of Davidic dynasty and so on and so forth. So let's just say, what were the scriptures that Nicodemus should have known when Jesus says, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? What are the scriptures that Nicodemus should have known that would have pointed him toward a spiritual kingdom instead of a natural kingdom? In Jeremiah 31, the Lord describes the new covenant, which is what Christ came to bring. And he says, I will make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then what's the new covenant? He goes on and he says, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it and they will all know me. So the change in covenant would be the internalization of God's will in human hearts. External requirements would go indoors and come inside of human hearts. And then he said, the end result would be relationship. They will all know me. So Jeremiah should have clued Nicodemus in. Joel 2.28 prophesies, uh, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. So these are Old Testament prophets that Nicodemus should have been versed in. They knew the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. They knew he wasn't coming out of Nazareth. They knew he would be of the line of David. They knew a lot of peripheral stuff, but they didn't know what the kingdom was going to be like. They expected a political kingdom 
and not a spiritual one. Jeremiah, I mean, Joel 2.28 says, It will come about after that that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. These are scriptures Nicodemus should have memorized. In Isaiah 44, it says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Ezekiel 37, it says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. I mean, all these Old Testament passages are saying what the change was going to look like. These are messianic passages. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. That means a spirit to seek God and the grace from God when you seek Him, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jerusalem got this spirit of grace and supplication when they saw whom they had pierced, and they mourned and said, what must we do? Okay, so another Old Testament scripture that Nicodemus should have memorized was Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So all of these scriptures should have prepped Nicodemus for a spiritual phenomenon. And he shouldn't have had this natural, likely political, insurrectionist kind of dynamic that was not uncommon among the Pharisees. He shouldn't have had that. He should have been expecting this spiritual phenomenon. So when he comes to Jesus, he goes, Hey, I think you might be our man. And Jesus says, Yeah, and you won't see the kingdom I'm coming to bring, and you won't ever enter it until something happens in you that is so transformative, it's like having to be born a second time. And what was that something that Jesus said would happen? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And he goes on, he says, Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. For the wind, or the pneuma, the spirit, blows where it listeth. You know not whither it cometh from, nor whither it goest, but you hear the sound of it. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to a man who has never conceived of the spiritual kingdom and has just been told when the kingdom comes you won't see it or enter it, Jesus says when the Spirit, when someone is born of the Spirit, the Spirit takes control and you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going but Jesus qualifies it. He says, but you hear the sound of it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's just told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, when someone's born of the Spirit, the power of God's wind spirit takes control. You aren't in control, but a sound occurs with everyone. Now, if you take that promise right there and you just jump forward to Acts, there's no way you can't see a promise and a fulfillment unless you're flawed by prejudice. Because it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together of one mind and one accord, and there came from heaven a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. 
And it filled the whole house where they were staying. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. And it says, And when this sound of speaking in tongues occurred, there were devout Jews living in Jerusalem who began to marvel and others mocked. Okay? So here we have something happening where people are yielding to a presence of the Spirit that is like a rushing wind in that they don't know what they're saying or who they're saying it to. It's not in their control, but there's this sound occurring. And when that sound occurs, the Jews in Jerusalem marvel. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it's coming from or going, but you hear its sound, the word he uses is phone. That's exactly the word that Luke uses when he describes the sound of glossolalia or the sound of speaking in tongues. What's interesting is the Jews marvel at the sound. And Peter stands up and says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He didn't say, guys, don't worry. This is a strange thing that Christians will be embarrassed of for the rest of time. But don't worry, it'll never happen again. It's just for the birth of the church as a sign, you know, and, and we're all going to be able to go back to our pride and our, our complacency and our indifference toward the presence of God very soon. You know, what he said is he said, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So they marveled at a sound and he said, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. But the scripture he quoted from Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. So the words of Joel are totally inclusive and the words of Peter are totally inclusive. Tragically for the flesh, he doesn't give any reassurance that this is a limited event, you know, a limited release event sort of thing. He says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He says, so God has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So he's just called it the outpouring of the Spirit and he says it's something we see and it's something we hear. And then he finishes the whole thing when they say, what must we do? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is only for a select few. No, he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. So we have to acknowledge that Jesus' introduction of the Holy Spirit, the rebirth, is totally inclusive. He says, so is it with everyone. And Peter's explanation of the glossolalia event at Pentecost is totally inclusive. In fact, there's no limiting language at all, either in Joel or in Peter's explanation. In, in Luke 24, 49, he says, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. In Acts 1.5, he says, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you receive power for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's called the baptism. It's called the infilling. But how do we righteously parse it from what Jesus described to Nicodemus? It is unavoidably the fulfillment of that depiction unless our brains are pretzeled by prejudice. Does anybody want to interject or add something here? Just a quick note that sure. stood out to me is, is um, you know, you, you pointed out that Nicodemus didn't understand the spiritual nature of what was going to happen, even though he knew the, the word. Mm. He knew the scriptures. Amen. 
Yet Peter says this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, Amen. an uneducated fisherman now who knew the word of God. Hallelujah. Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, or, or Peter, the, the fisherman? So what problem does spirit immersion solve? Spirit immersion takes people who are mere men, to quote the Apostle Paul, and it expands a dimension for relationship between them and the divine. Spiritual immersion is to open a channel of communication. If we were back in the late 19th century and we walked into a crowd at Grand Central Station and thousands of people who've never seen a television, who've never seen a telephone, who've never imagined of these technologies that we take for granted, and we saw a handful of people walking around with a phone on their ear talking. And we had never heard of a telephone. We had never seen a telephone. We would think they were insane. Is it still politically correct to say insane? I think so. Okay, we would think they were seriously mentally challenged or handicapped or whatever it would be. We would see people walking around with black objects on their ears talking at themselves because we didn't perceive that this was an instrument to open communication between parties. In the same way, when we see people speaking in tongues, Paul says that the unbelieving side of our carnal man thinks that they're insane. Paul is pretty pretty upfront about that. He's like, unbelievers think it's insane. And they still do. Unbelievers still think it's insane. Even, especially in the church. But they don't understand that it's merely a technology, and I use that word loosely, but it's merely a technology to increase contact and relationship with God. The carnal man cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, when he talks about the church as the kingdom, in Matthew 16, he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say the coming one. And he says to Peter or to whoever, Peter's the one who answers, he says, who do you say that I am? And in a moment of anointed inspiration, a true divine epiphany, Peter says, thou art the Christ, Mashiach, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns around and he doesn't say, blessed are you, Simon, because you got it right and the rest didn't have an answer. He said, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. So the blessing was that you just got, you just heard something from God. And that is the starting point for a church. That is the starting point for the kingdom. So he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Behold, I give you the keys to the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is a direct pneumatological contact with the Father in heaven where we hear his voice and we utter it. That is the starting point of the kingdom on the earth. That is, that's the Peter moment. Jesus was born of the Spirit. The angel had whispered 
in Joseph's ear, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But Romans 8 and Hebrews both tell us that he was the firstborn of many brethren. So if he was, the, if he was born of the Spirit, he was the first in human history to be born of the Spirit. Amen? Don't give me this garbage that David was born of the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was blessed by the Spirit. The Spirit came on him situationally, but he was not born of the Spirit. Jesus was the first to be born of the Spirit. But Jesus believed that that situational anointing that happened with Peter there in Matthew 16 would become a full-blown contact relationship with, with heaven, with the Spirit of God. And it's no wonder that on the day of Pentecost, he's the one who just after speaking unknowable tongues begins to speak the most clear, powerful, scriptural, interpretive language that anybody's heard from his mouth yet. And he says, men and brethren, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit. So, Kingdom is spiritual. Basically, let's just use this crummy analogy again and say, God does not live in the White House. He is not a man that you can just walk up to and shake his hand. He's got to establish communication with earth through his own means. And that situational contact was extant throughout the prophets, throughout the righteous men of old. But with the coming of Christ and the rending of the veil of the temple, the glory and the access and the contact point between heaven and earth became the body of Christ. But Paul says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We pass through a watery veil. We pass through the immersion of the spirit into that space called the kingdom of God called that place where Christ reigns on the other side. It's not impossible for me to return to my carnality after being baptized in the Spirit. Anybody can do that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he rebukes the Corinthians for acting like mere men. I mean, that would be our excuse if Paul's like, guys, you're not being spiritual. Paul, I'm just a mere man. But that was his rebuke. That was his indictment. The very thing that we would use as our excuse was his indictment. He says, you guys are acting like mere men. As if there were some new dimension added to a believer's life that enabled them to be more than a mere man. As if they had been endued with power from on high. As if the promise of the Father had come in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. What is the greatest thing of the Spirit of God? It's the kingdom of God. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If something doesn't change to add a new dimension to our relationship with God, we're going to look at the most powerful things he does as the stupidest, most silly things. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, You are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? There's that indictment. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and you are all given the one spirit to drink. So the kingdom is for now. Jesus says in Mark 9, 1, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, there are those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. They saw that on the day of Pentecost. That was the dunamis. That was the power that came. And something had to change in every one of them. Peter, Peter believed in Jesus prior to Pentecost, but he denied him when questioned by a servant girl. Amen. Something changed. Something changed from this guy shivering outside the fire at Caiaphas' house saying, I don't know the man. And now suddenly taking his stand before all Jerusalem. Let all the house of Israel know, says Peter. What has changed? He's been endued with power. That's what's changed. He has received power from on high. So what I'm saying is the kingdom of God is the Lord reigning through the Spirit because now the Lord is the Spirit. In order to become a vibrant, interactive member of that kingdom, we have to open up a new channel of communication, namely spiritual relationship. He told the woman at the well, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Everybody wants to worship in the truth, but that's not enough, amen, because no scriptures of private interpretation. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if you're not carried along by the Holy Spirit while you're interpreting it, it's not going to be God's Word. Maybe there's some questions or some additions or anything that somebody would like to chime in here. Absolutely. I also think about where Paul says, we are the true circumcision, those who worship in the Spirit. Amen. Who put no confidence in the flesh and who rejoice in Christ Jesus. I keep going back to what... Paul went back to over and over again as the convincing evidence that what he was speaking was actually the truth. He said, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God wants us to put our faith in something more than just how we can interpret a scripture. I mean, in short, if you take that at face value, would we not say that Truth and teaching that is not a demonstration of the Spirit results in people putting faith in men. Absolutely. Read it again. I mean, Amen. read what Paul's saying. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when you have teaching and preaching that is devoid of a yes. demonstration of the Spirit and power, what you're doing is you're... You're garnering men's faith unto yeah. men Amen. instead of unto the power of God. Amen. I think of what John says in his epistle about what is, what does he see as the thing that's going to lead people into truth, not just opening the Scriptures. Obviously, that's, that's going to be the place where God speaks to us. But he says, you have an anointing that is from the Holy One, and he will teach you all things and lead you into all truth. Amen. You go back over and over again. He also says, he who, ha he who is born of God has the witness in himself. Amen. Speaking of the Spirit. And it is the thing that they relied on over and over again as the demonstration, as the witness that this was really of God. Amen. And we have to ask the question, has God changed? Has human nature changed? Do people no longer need a witness to declare truth? Or do we just, with our carnal minds, can we just look at the Scriptures and come up with truth on our own? I mean, the eunuch didn't feel like he could do that. He Amen. felt like he needed somebody who had the Spirit to explain it to him. Nicodemus, who had the Scriptures, felt like he couldn't see it. Jesus was revealing more through the Spirit. Amen. He says even the Spirit gives testimony that we are sons of God. 
He has made the Spirit to dwell in us to bear witness that we are sons of God, Amen. he says. In Luke 24.49 and Acts 1.5 and, and then again in Acts 2.38 and also prior to that, all these scriptures describe the Acts event as the promise. Amen. And then in Galatians 3.29, also Galatians 4.28 and 24, Amen. Paul says that people are born of the Spirit of the promise. Amen. So Paul describes the promise event as rebirth. Amen. Peter describes the promise event as Pentecost. Jesus describes the promise event as Pentecost. The term, the promise, this, this seminal thing that all these died in faith having not received, this event is Pentecost. He concludes the whole thing by saying, this promise is for you and for your children. Amen. Paul calls that the rebirth. So some would love to categorize it and say, well, you're born of God when you believe, but you're baptized if something special happens to you, and they call that the gift of tongues. What happened at Pentecost was not the gift of tongues. What happened at Pentecost was the gift of the Holy Spirit with the sign of tongues. And so they want to say, oh, well, you know, you might get the gift of tongues, but that's the baptism. Rebirth is when you first believe. Yeah. No, I would say salvation is when you first believe, if that continues. But rebirth is imputed until it's imparted. Rebirth is what happened at Pentecost. That is the outpouring. That is the infilling. That is the baptism. And that is the rebirth. Amen. God has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. So somebody says, well, I thought that you receive the Spirit when you believe. How, how can you look at Acts 8, yeah. where Philip makes many disciples, and it says many believed on the Lord Jesus and were baptized, but none of them had received the Spirit. So they said, well, that's okay. People got it at Pentecost, but apparently not in Samaria. No. They sent for the apostles, and when the apostles came, they laid hands on the people who had believed and been baptized. And when they laid their hands on them, they received the Spirit. Now, whatever happened was so much more powerful than the baptism and the initial belief that a sorcerer goes, <clears throat> I'd like to offer some money for that. So we, we, we're just lying to ourselves if we deny that what happened is the same thing that happened at Pentecost. And then Acts 19 is even better. Acts 19.5, you know, Paul is passing through the upper region. He meets believers at Ephesus and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Yeah. Now for a modern evangelical, that's a nonsensical question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They'd be like, um, <clears throat> of course, everybody receives the Spirit. No, no, that's, that's, that's just something we've imposed on Scripture. So he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we haven't heard about that. He asked them how they were baptized. He told them to be baptized again. And when he laid this, his hands on them, it says the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So this is exactly what happened with Nicodemus as well. Oh, the first with the Gentiles and the first with the Jews. Oh, so much baloney. It happened everywhere. It happened in Samaria. It happened in Ephesus. It happened in Cornelius' house. He said that those of the circumcision were marveling 
that God had given them the same gift of the Spirit, not of tongues, of the Spirit that He gave Amen. us at the beginning. And then He says, when we first believed, when He tells it in uh, Acts 11. And so there is a sense in which it does mark a new degree of belief that the apostle even calls it first belief. Yeah. So they had belief while they followed Jesus for three and a half years, but apparently it changed because he called it first belief. So it's a little bit confusing, but nonetheless, it is possible to have some measure of even saving faith and yet not yet receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But if you'll Amen. continue in it, Amen. it will result in that. I can't get over that so much of what's happened in the church seems to be that, and I'm just speaking very broadly, but so much of what's happened in the church has been those who preach that the resurrection is not possible. Amen. You know, that that's really at the heart of what this message is. That, you know, let's just think about all the things that the disciples experienced prior to Pentecost. Okay? They healed people who were lame. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, they um, walked, one of them walked on water. Mm -hmm. They saw bread multiply and dispersed it to 5,000 and to 4,000. Yeah. One of them in prayer had a revelation of who Jesus was in the flesh. Mm -hmm. I mean, in prayer, Spirit of God comes upon him. He knows now who stands in front of him. Um, they left their old ways and their old ways of living. <clears throat> Amen. They left vocation. They left family. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about all that, that they baptized happened. people. In, in Matthew 20, li listen to this. In Matthew 20, 21, he says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I don't know about you, but that sounds like people having a radical encounter with a change in their life. And what he's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys saw what happened to the prostitutes and tax collectors under the ministry of John the Baptist, and you guys didn't give glory to God, and you didn't enter into the same repentance. That's amazing. So that should have been enough to provoke belief. Amen. So there was quite a move that was happening. In fact, he could go on to say, even though John did no miracles, there was not a more powerful ministry than had ever been on this earth. So, I mean, we're talking about people were having powerful, you know, encounters, okay? They were changing their whole life. Prostitutes and tax collectors are completely reforming their life under the baptism of John, and they're starting to hunger and thirst for something more deep and more authentic in relationship with God. And yet all of that journey is still going to culminate in those that have to believe in their resurrection from the dead. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting that Paul wants to lay that parallel as the life of Abraham, who heard the call from, from the Lord to come out of Ur and to follow his voice and to go out into the land that he would show him, knowing not where he was going. He teaches them all these things through the course of discipleship and fatherhood, but the entire time he's still pressing them towards the promise. Amen. Now the promise, it first gets introduced through a natural fulfillment. Right, and I, I just see. can't help but think that that's what we're seeing the world over. Mm -hmm. It's everyone who says, you guys, a powerful encounter with the living God where fire from heaven births in your soul is not possible. Mm. But Ishmael is still faith. Mm. You're still believing that God's going to make 
your offspring is the number of the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky, you're just believing that he's going to do it through more natural means, mm. you know? And it's that appeal mm. that says, just stay in faith, but stay in faith in something that's within reason, within touch, mm. you know? And I'm telling you, for those that look at Ishmael and settle for Ishmael, according to Paul, they settle for works of the flesh done by the law. And they persecute those who are born of the Spirit, he said. Amen. He said they still do it to this day. Amen. But Paul in Romans 7 says, if instead you let this law have its perfect work on you, what it's designed to do, what it's actually designed to crucify you, like he says in Galatians 2.20, mm-hmm. I thank God for the law, for I've died. Through the law, I died to, to the, the law, law. Yeah. that I might be born. You know, I mean, you start seeing in Romans 7 that he's talking about, listen, the law has had a wonderful, Ishmael had a purpose. You want to know what it was? Amen. It was to tell us all that this is not it. And you need to hope in something greater than this. Amen. And he says, when the law came, it wouldn't give you the righteousness you know you desired. And he calls everyone out and tells what everyone has experienced. You know when you turned to God and you delighted in God with your mind, but your inward man betrayed you. Amen. You guys know what this feels like, he's saying. You know what this looks like lived out. Amen. But then he comes to the end of the chapter and he talks about the wretched man that he is. What will save him from this body of sin and death. Does that start to sound like blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness Amen. for they shall be filled? Does that start to sound like let anyone who is thirsty come to me Amen. and from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water? Paul says the first, the natural, the law, the desire to come to God and to be right with him, but to do it through your own natural means. He says, if you'll stay on that course, it's going to lead you to the crucifixion. It's going to lead you to Calvary in which you're going to see that nothing in of yourself can please God. And the whole of it is going to have to be buried and condemned on that tree. And he says, and if you will hope against hope and a God that can raise the dead and bring to life out of nothing, then you can have the promise given to Abraham, the miraculous birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you have a group of people every time in the book of Acts in which it talks about a baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have a group of people who explode on the other side speaking in an unknown tongue. Now, I don't know about you, but if rivers of living water, not a leaking faucet, you know, I wouldn't think would need to look like tongues. But if I were to just take a man and put him right in front of me and I were to say, okay, I'm going to take the imagery that the Lord has given me, rivers of living water gushing out of this man's heart. What is it going to look like? I mean, if that happens, if what we see in Solomon's day, fire comes down, consumes the offering, fills the whole temple that no man can even enter into it. If that's going to happen within the confines of a man's soul right in front of me, what is it going to look like? I bet I'll just see his ears steam a bit. Oh, I think maybe that thing that we talked about, that new birth thing with the with the life of God being birthed inside of this soul, I think it's happening. Why do you think that? I don't know. He's just got a twitch to his eye a little bit. I mean, rivers of living water rushing out of a man? I mean, is there a better explanation? 
than every time Cornelius's house, as they heard about the resurrection, they believed. Amen. They hoped against Amen. hope that that promise could be Amen. true of them and what they had longed for, Thank to you, be Jesus. right with God in the inward man. The word of faith was coming to them. God was raising men from the dead. They could Amen. be born again. you know. And it says they believed as they were hearing and they burst out into tongues. Amen. I mean, why? What's happening? Amen. You know, well, rivers of living water are flowing out of that man. Amen. Okay, so what is the assault work of the devil if he wants to keep us all individualistic and all believing in Ishmael? It's unbelief. Amen. That's why Galatians is written. That's why Amen. Hebrews is written. That evil heart of unbelief that Hebrews constantly exhorts Amen. towards. It's because if you shrink back in this way, the kingdom of God is not going to advance in a people. Someone said to me that speaking in tongues brings disunity in the body. And the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to bring unity. You know, and I think we can all think of a few passages in which we're really, you know, out in the weeds on this one. You know, our Lord saying, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to divide a home, all these different things. But nonetheless, let's just go with this theme for a minute. And let's just say to ourselves, if, and I don't want to talk about the gift of tongues, baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. Does that unify or does it divide a people? Well, I'll tell you this. It divides those who want Hagar mm -hmm. and Mount Sinai mm -hmm. to be their form of religion. Mm -hmm. It does. The scriptures tell us time and time and time again. It actually says that the first pattern of this was not set on the birth of Isaac and Ishmael, or Ishmael and Isaac, but it was actually set on Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. And that's the first pattern we have mm -hmm. in which Cain is hateful towards the whole sacrifice that Abel has brought. It sheds a negative light on his half measure, Amen. on his portion in which he's held a bit back. God says, you know, just go and do what is right. But if mm -hmm. you don't, sin is going to crouch and it's going to devour. So our first one is Cain and Abel, but we see it in Jacob and Esau, mm -hmm. don't we? That the older is going to serve the younger. The older covenant is going to be a servant until people hunger and thirst and long for birth into the new covenant. Mm -hmm. The older is going to serve the younger. Even within Jacob, we have two wives that show us this. You know, with Leah and whom he's laboring for, and it feels like seven years. And then Rachel, because of his love union, his desire for her, it says that it felt as though seven years was but a day. And the difference between the new covenant, he says, I won't make a covenant like I did back in those days where you always want to stray in your heart, where it was laborious for you and for me because there was no union. He goes, I'm going to make a covenant in these new days in which there will be union. All of you will say, I know the Lord, Amen. you know, and he says, that's what's going to be this new day. Do we get unified with the speaking in tongues? Yeah. So what would you say is the number one cause of division? And before you go saying it's tongues, you'd be a liar, and you wouldn't be quoting scripture. Selfish ambition. Can you quote it by heart? Where there exists envy and selfish ambition, there abides disunity and every evil thing. Interesting. Yes. So it's not tongues that cause disunity, but it turns out it's or the disorder, it's, one translation. It's yeah. the flesh. Yeah. In fact, here's, here's him saying it differently. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says a, a, a divided man who is yielding to his own flesh 
is a man who's in constant contention of relationship with those around them. It's only the spirit that brings unity. The unity of the spirit. That, that's the it. That comes down from above. I will tell you right now that if you get into a group, uh, into a, a, a large room, and you require that everyone prays all the way through, I'm talking to the place of need and desperation, to the place of thirst, and says, God, I'm going to the place in which no flesh can dwell. I'm getting past all the unbelief, all the fear. I'm crucifying all the self-interest, all of its desires. I'm seeing it buried. I'm believing in your promise, in your gift, and I am pressing in until that explodes in my heart. And it's evidenced through something that takes me over, and I know that I'm in the presence of the living God. If you have a group of people do that and all come into a room, let me ask you this. Do you have unity or do you have disunity? <laughs> the most beautiful unity imagine. You're going to have perfect unity. So interestingly enough, even though whatever tongue you started praying in, when you prayed all the way through or that you prayed in or that I prayed through, maybe it wasn't all the same. And yet for the first time, do we not all have one language? Amen. Why Amen. do we have one language? Because we all hear one another because we hear the Lord. 